This episode is brought to you by Milano Cookies. Look, sometimes that long Zen yoga class is just not in the cards. So maybe a cookie is. Pepperidge Farm Milano believes you should make some time for yourself once in a while. I know I have a particular space in my sewing room that I like to just take a few minutes every day. I sit there. I think about things. It's kind of like meditation and munching at the same time. You can get that yummy, beautiful cookie flavor. It makes it luxurious and delightful, and I always feel recharged. Milano cookies are truly a treat worthy of your me time. They're delicate and crispy with luxuriously rich chocolate in the middle. You really want to keep these just for you. So remember to save something for yourself with Pepperidge Farm Milano. The Only Way is Through, a new podcast in partnership with iHeartRadio and Under Armour. Players, coaches, and athletes will share intimate and personal stories of performing at the highest level. Here is Canadian heptathlete Georgia Ellenwood. The reason I won is because on that day I was confident. I need to continue that mentality to understand that I can be an Olympic athlete. I can compete with the best in the world and just perform. Listen to The Only Way is Through, available now on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Tracy V. Wilson. And I'm Holly Fry. And we're going to continue the second part of our two-part episode about Audre Lorde today. And community building and solidarity were major themes of Audre Lorde's poetry and her life. And because of the role that she played in the feminist movement and the community of women that she uh, worked within, we'd really be remiss if we didn't at least mention a few of her lifelong friends. These included Adrian Rich and her lifelong partner, Michelle Cliff, both poets, and Professor uh, Blanche Cook and playwright Claire Koss. For most of Audrey's life, her partner and co-parent was a woman named Frances Clayton, and she spent her last years with a woman named Gloria Joseph. And Audrey was also a teacher and a speaker. She worked at a number of colleges and universities during her career, and she became an influential presence in the feminist movement. She edited literary journals, uh, helping to give a voice to emerging black poets. And when white publishers didn't want to publish the work of people of color, especially women and doubly especially lesbians of color, she and other women started their own presses. Uh, she was also a policy panelist for the National Endowment of the Arts Literature Program. Also an activist, Audrey helped found a number of social organizations, including the anti-apartheid organization Sisters in Support of Sisters in South Africa and the Women's Coalition of St. Croix. With Barbara Smith, she co-founded Kitchen Table, Women of Color Press, which was the first publisher run by women of color in the United States. Not long before her death, she was also the first black person to be named the New York State Poet. So in this episode, we'll talk about her personal, political, and poetic lives, uh, including her world as a wife and a mother. When she was 27, Audrey met the man that she would later marry, Edward Ashley Rollins. He had graduated from law school at Columbia. Earlier than that, at the age of 17, he had run away from home to join the Navy, although he had to have his father's permission to do so because of his age. And coincidentally, both Ed and Audrey were having an affair with the same woman before they met, uh, one of several women that Audrey was involved with at the time. Ed wanted to have children. And long before they were in a physical relationship with each other, Audrey had also thought about having children with Ed. 
And they both had their own pretty serious internal struggles about their relationship. And they had to do a lot of soul searching before committing to it. Audrey was black and identified as lesbian. Uh, Ed was white. And while he didn't really identify as gay, he had mostly been involved with men for a number of years. Their whole existence as a couple had all kinds of social and political implications for them and basically any anyone they would ever encounter. Uh, Ed's mother and many of Audrey's friends were also opposed to the idea. And they loved each other, but they weren't really in love. Uh, to quote Audrey... As a black lesbian mother in an interracial marriage, there was usually some part of me guaranteed to offend everybody's comfortable prejudices of who I should be. They got married on March 31st, 1962, with the idea that they would work together to have children and raise a family according to their own rules and principles. And this was not an overwhelmingly popular decision among either of their uh, personal lives. No one from Ed's family attended the uh, the wedding. And several of Audrey's lesbian friends made the same decision. The pair had two children, Elizabeth and Jonathan. Audrey's ideas about birth and child raising were also quite progressive for the time. She wanted Ed to go to childbirth classes with her and to be in the room when she gave birth. And she wanted the baby to stay with her rather than be in a hospital nursery. She also wanted to breastfeed, which did not have nearly the level of social insistence or acceptance that it does today. Uh, as they got older, she made homemade whole grain bread for the children and limited how much sugar they could have. And she talked openly with both of them about social issues, ideas that are pretty commonplace today, but in the early 60s were not so much. Yeah, it's a lot of the things that at the time were really progressive are today pretty much a given uh, when it comes to a lot of the things that she thought about giving birth and raising children. Yeah. In 1963, Audrey and Ed attended the March on Washington for Jobs at Freedom, uh, at which Martin Luther King Jr. delivered his I Have a Dream speech, although they had left by the time he started, and they listened to it in the car on the way home. Um, Audrey wrote, though, that she found the march an immensely moving experience. At Christmas time of 1963, their apartment burned in a fire after Ed left a cigarette unattended. Then, in June of 1965, Audrey was rear-ended at a red light while baby Jonathan was in the car with her. His injuries were minor, but because of her injuries, uh, Audrey was unable to pick up her children or write for months. So their relationship, apart from all of the social issues that were inherent in it, which put their own pressures uh, onto the two of them, it gradually became strained. Both of them were having relationships with people, which on its own was fine with both of them and was sort of part of the deal. But Audrey was open about her relationships with women and disclosed them to Ed. And uh, often they were with people that she was friends with. Ed, on the other hand, tended to carry out his affairs in secret, which Audrey found upsetting. Uh, in their disagreements with each other, Audrey could sometimes become violent. Another source of stress uh, likely had to do with Ed's privilege as a white man. Audrey was perpetually aware of their presence as an interracial couple during the civil rights movement. She knew that their relationship was a risky one to be in and that they faced criticism and judgment from both black and white communities. Ed, on the other hand, didn't really even consider his sexual orientation and his marriage as a potential obstacle to his work in law. When Ed's career as a lawyer didn't really take off, they ran into financial trouble. Audrey had stopped working while she was pregnant with their first child, and so she got a night shift job and started trying to help with her father's old real estate business as well. Her mother had inherited it after his death. 
Audrey started using amphetamines again in an effort to keep up with all of these responsibilities and also her children. She didn't write much during her children's youngest years. Uh, but then a man taking a class on black writers asked to interview her for a paper. And she agreed. And the paper portrayed her as someone who had given up on writing to become a wife and mother. And after reading it, she really rededicated herself to writing. She set up a desk in her bedroom and insisted that Ed would take over the household for three hours a day so that she would have time to just focus on her writing. At first, as she was trying to get back into the world of poetry, she didn't have a lot of success getting published. But then the black arts movement evolved from the civil rights and black power movements. A number of new black publications started to uh, take shape. And in 1967, independent publisher Poets Press contacted Audrey with interest in publishing a book of her work. Her first published poetry collection was called The First Cities, and it came out in April of 1968. That following January, uh, Audrey received a call from Galen Williams, who would go on to launch the literary organization Poets and Writers. And in this call, Galen was telling her that she had been recommended to receive a National Endowment for the Arts grant to be a poet in residence at a historically black college called Tougaloo College in Mississippi. She was really reluctant to go at first. She, you know, she was a mother and her children needed her. She'd also been sick for several months following a particularly bad case of the flu, the South itself itself was still reeling from the civil rights movement and desegregation. The Deep South at that point was an enormously dangerous place for black people as a whole. Tougaloo itself was also the scene of uh, pretty violent racial hostility. There were always there were frequent reports of shots being fired by white people along the edge of uh, town into the black areas of town. But she decided to go. And later, she said that the experience of teaching there changed her life. So for six weeks at Tougaloo, Audrey taught a poetry workshop, and it was her first work as a teacher. In her workshops, they talked a lot about identity and the nuances of race and making a personal connection to writing and learning. It really became a collaborative environment in which Audrey learned more about her own work while teaching and writing. They all, including Audrey, wrote a huge amount of work, and Audrey worked with Galen Williams during this time to publish a literary magazine for the students. Audrey's work at Tougaloo was part of what convinced her to use poetry and language as a force for social change in the world. Following teaching there, she wanted to use her own writing to open people's hearts and minds and to raise awareness of racism, sexism, homophobia, and other forms of discrimination. And she wanted to teach other people to read and think and write as well. She went on to have teaching jobs at City College in New York, Herbert H. Lamont College, John Jay College of Criminal Justice, and Hunter College, as well as lots of other visiting teaching roles. She taught writing workshops as well as classes and workshops on racism and identity all over the place. And while she was at Tougaloo, Audrey also met Frances Clayton. And although Audrey had had many other relationships while married to Ed, the depth of her relationship with Frances was quite different. She couldn't do both. She couldn't maintain her marriage and this relationship. She loved Ed, but she was really increasingly in love with Frances. And when she returned home to New York, uh, her relationship with Ed became even more strained than it had already been. But they had two children together, and her children's well-being was a huge priority, so Audrey wanted to go to couples therapy, but for a long time, Ed was resistant to the idea. In the spring of 1970, Audrey and Ed had a trial separation, and that fall she asked him to move out. 
They finalized their their separation agreement in 1971 and started divorce proceedings in 1972. Their divorce became final in 1975, and it was not really amicable by this point. Although Audrey and Ed weren't living together anymore, her relationship with Francis was, for a while, long distance. Uh, Audrey was in New York, and Francis was in Rhode Island, where she worked at Brown University. And the distance really became increasingly painful for both of them. So they finally moved in together, with Francis moving to New York, uh, since Audrey had to stay there due to the divorce, in 1972. While she hadn't really been hiding her relationships with women, in 1973, Audrey publicly came out during a poetry reading. Frances became Audrey's partner and co-mother to her children, and this relationship lasted for most of the rest of Audrey's life. Although Audrey continued to be involved with other women, though more discreetly than in her life with Ed, where she was very forthright about it. The two women bought a house together in one of New New York's more conservative neighborhoods, and they were really frequent targets of racism and homophobia there. The kids also had a hard time. They were leaving this privileged world of private school to attend a public school, and they didn't really fit in with either the white children or the black children in their new environment. And as a mother, Audrey tried to instill in both of the kids a sense of social justice and a firm understanding of her values. She wanted Jonathan in particular to grow up as an advocate for equal rights. But sometimes this was a struggle. As we know, kids don't always do what their parents envision for them. Uh, and Audrey really worried about the lack of a male role model in Jonathan's life in their home. It also wasn't always easy for her to put forth her own beliefs in a way that that made sense to the kids. She believed in nonviolence, for example, but she was really outraged when she learned that the children were being bullied at their new school and and not fighting back. In her view, while nonviolence was preferable, defending oneself was also a necessity. In 1974, Audrey's collection of poetry, From a Land Where Other People Live, was nominated for the National Book Award for Poetry. The other nominees included, among others, Audrey and Rich and Alice Walker. Audrey and Alice and Audrey all knew one another. It's an alliterative crew to all be nominated together. It is. Uh, and they knew one another's work, and they were all feminists. Before the winner was announced, they got together and wrote a statement that would be read on behalf of all of them should one of them win. Audrey and Rich's collection, Diving into the Wreck, Poems, 1971-1972, co-won, along with Allen Ginsberg's The Fall of America, Poems of These States, 1965-1971. to Here's part of the statement that Audrey and Rich read when accepting the award. The statement I'm going to read was prepared by three of the women nominated for the National Book Award for Poetry, with the agreement that it would be read by whichever of us, if any, was chosen. We, Audrey Lord. Audrey and Rich, and Alice Walker, together accept this award in the name of all the women whose voices have gone and still go unheard in a patriarchal world, and in the name of those who, like us, have been tolerated as token women in this culture, often at great cost and in great pain. We believe that we can enrich ourselves more in supporting and giving to each other than by competing against each other, and that poetry, if it is poetry, exists in a realm beyond ranking and comparison. We symbolically join together here in refusing the terms of patriarchal competition and declaring that we will share this prize among us to be used as best we can for women. I think that is a great sentiment. And we're going to let that sit for a second as we pause. Hey, Holly, we have some exciting news. 
Yeah, I am wildly excited, and uh, people will have another opportunity to watch me cry at art. <laughs> yeah, you sounded so calm, and it's not a calm situation at all. Uh, our trip to Paris last year was really successful, so we're doing another similar trip this year, but this time to Rome and Florence. It's May 14th through 21st, 2020, and like last time, it is with a company called Defined Destinations, who is planning out this whole trip for us. Yeah, and during that week-long trip, we are going to see some of the great art that we have talked about on this show many times, including Michelangelo's David. We are going to go to Tuscany. We're going to visit St. Peter's Basilica. We are going to the Sistine Chapel. So it's going to be a fantastic trip. You can get the whole list of places that we are going and information about booking at defineddestinations.com. Scroll down to the Roman Florence trip with Stuff You Missed in History class or come over to our social media. We have posts about it there too. Hey, listeners, I wanted to tell you about a new podcast from iHeartRadio called The Women, hosted by Rose Reed. It is a fascinating and deep dive interview show where Rose talks to changemakers and disruptors, and she finds out what really drives them. So she will ask each of them, what was your first stand and how do you navigate success and failure? And really, what's the cost of fighting for others? These interviews are really personal and they're candid and sometimes they're a little bit crass, but they are always really enlightening. You can listen to these firebrands and takeaway lessons that will help you navigate your own life and forge your own path. The debut season includes women like Valerie Plame, the former CIA agent who is now running for Congress, and whistleblower and pediatrician Dr. Mona Hanna-Attisha, who exposed the Flint water crisis and became the center of a swirling, swirling amount of problems, uh, and the legendary Buffy St. Marie, 60s songwriter and activist. Uh, I have personal interest in this show because I adore Rose and I executive produce it, and I think you're really going to enjoy the way that she gets into these conversations that feel like two friends talking, and they are an absolute delight. So subscribe to The Women on the iHeartRadio app, on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. So are you ready to dive back into the world of Audrey Lord? Yes, we're going to start with lots of travel. All righty. Starting in the late 1970s, Audrey started to travel, and she would continue to travel pretty extensively for the rest of her life. First, she went to Barbados, where her father had been born, and one of the things she wanted to do while there was to find evidence of his birth. She was not really successful in that effort, but that was one of her goals. The year that she turned 40, uh, she and her family traveled to the west coast of Africa. Audrey was following an intuition that her ancestors had been from there. So this trip and the trip to Barbados were both, in a way, about uh, her seeking out her identity and her roots. Her time in Africa deeply influenced her writing and her identity after she returned. She increasingly drew from African spirituality and dress, and African imagery made its way into her writing. She continued to travel around the United States and to other countries, including the Soviet Union and Nigeria, to read, speak, and attend conferences. Along with themes of love, equality, and social progress that were already prevalent in her work, she began to write about the power of the erotic after seeing how differently eroticism and physical relationships were approached in Africa than in the West. And in 1975, uh, as her work was becoming better known, she also began working with literary agent Charlotte Sheedy, whose agency actually still represents Lord's work today. W.W. Norton published her collection, Cole, in 1976. And being published by a major publisher marked a huge turn in her prominence as a poet. 
1977, at the age of 43, Audrey went to the doctor after finding a lump in her breast. She had a biopsy, which showed that the tumor was benign. She started writing and speaking about this experience almost immediately. Uh, she delivered a speech about it on a panel at a Modern Language Association meeting less than a month after she had uh, been given the results. Less than a year after that, on Labor Day 1978, she found another lump, and she went for another biopsy. This time, the lump was malignant, and unlike the previous lump, which had really taken her by surprise, she'd really been living with the idea of cancer for almost a year. This time, she had already researched her options for treatment and had a list of questions prepared for her doctor when she went in. Her decision was to have a mastectomy, and that took place on September 22nd. And after the mastectomy, she really changed her diet and lifestyle dramatically uh, and began taking supplements. She also began writing about her experience with cancer, as well as the sexist treatment she witnessed in the world of medicine and cancer treatment, and the pressures that were placed on women to conform after having a mastectomy. Her journals from this period were published as essays and then as a book called The Cancer Journals, and that came out in 1980. The Cancer Journals was a really groundbreaking work for a whole lot of reasons. One is that it approached breast cancer from a black lesbian perspective, which was pretty much absent in the discussion about breast cancer at the time. It also discussed cancer, mastectomy, and reconstructive surgery uh, within the medical establishment in a really frank and probing way. She did not pull any punches in the way she wrote about how doctors spoke to her how nurses spoke to her, uh, how people would sort of show up in her room with the presumption that it was time for her to have a prosthesis now. Like there wasn't really, she was like, the, but that's not a lot the, of assumption made about lots and lots what of she assumption. should be doing. Uh, and there were also times when she would like, she would get copies of her own medical uh, records and she would see just deeply judgmental and cruel things that doctors had written about her in her medical records. She did not sugarcoat, any of that. Uh, and her decision not to have reconstructive surgery and also not to wear a breast prosthesis is one that a lot of people would still consider subversive today. Sort of an automatic assumption that if a woman has a mastectomy, she is then going to attempt to appear that she still has two breasts. And Audrey Lord was like, no, I am not doing that. You cannot make me. Uh, she instead adopted that as part of her whole identity. She would sort of dress in an asymmetric way to uh, incorporate the idea mm-hmm. that like her body was different now, um, which is not, it it's, was not, it's not common at all. No, even now when those sorts of issues are discussed more openly and people do make that choice a little bit more than they may be used to. It's still viewed with sort of a, at best, like a quizzical reaction from people. Right. Why would you choose that? But why would you not want to have? <laughs> yeah. But that this is what I'm doing. Yeah. So in the 70s, that was hugely um, outlier thinking. Right. And despite going through all this later in 1978, she was one of the speakers at the first National March on Washington for lesbian and gay rights. In 1981, she had another cancer scare when the doctor found blood in her stool, but that turned out to be a false alarm. In 1983, the United States invaded Grenada, which could definitely be its own podcast, in Operation Urgent Fury. 
The prime minister had been deposed and later murdered, and a communist leader took the helm. The invasion was, in part, a piece of the Reagan administration's attempt to rid the world of communism. Audrey, who at this point had really started to consider the Caribbean her home, wrote a scathing essay about this called Grenada Revisited, an Interim Report, which appeared as part of her collection of essays, Sister Outsider. Her position was that American foreign policy was rooted in racism and that the invasion of Grenada was a racist act meant to subjugate and dominate people of color. With this essay, she also clarified her own identity as Grenadian-American. She took another trip to Grenada after the invasion to make sure that the nation had survived the American invasion. In February of 1984, she started having pain and trouble with digestion. During a CAT scan to evaluate her gallbladder, doctors found a tumor on her liver, almost certainly metastasized from her breast cancer. She knew that a malignant tumor was going to mean radiation and chemotherapy, which she did not like the idea of doing. Uh, And at the time, that would still have pretty low odds of survival. So she decided not to have a biopsy. She traveled. She went to Mexico and St. Croix, and she wrote about how important it was to her to be somewhere warm and bright. In April, she traveled to Germany, and that was a trip that had been in the works since 1982, when filmmaker, writer, and activist Dagmar Schultz had asked her to come to speak at the Afro-German community at the Free University of Berlin. This trip turned into a speaking and community-building journey through several countries. While she was in Europe, though, her health started to decline. She started seeing a homeopathic and anthroposophic doctor who agreed with her decision not to have a biopsy and started her on a regimen of alternative treatments. Uh, In case you've not heard of it, anthroposophic medicine combines conventional practices with spirituality and holistic treatments. It's kind of a mind-body-spirit treatment plan. Do you like boats? Do you like big boats? Do you like people working on yachts? Do you like poor people and the rich people they serve on yachts? Are you always like, what goes on below deck? Hi, this is Anna Hosniak. And Nick Turner. The hosts of Deckheads. And we want to take you on a fun and goofy adventure. In this binge-style podcast, we will watch and recap every episode of Bravo's Below Deck and all of its spinoffs. We got Below Deck Mediterranean and Below Deck Sailing Yacht. And we're going to release an episode every Monday through Friday so you can watch along with us and listen to our silly daily recaps. Since podcasters are the scum of the earth and below the people who work below deck, we record in the bowels of the boat. That's right. We're just two fabulous idiots trying to catch you up on one of the most wonderful shows on television with our self-proclaimed quirky and offbeat personalities. I never said that. Okay. Listen to Deckheads when it drops on February 20th on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And after traveling and speaking around Europe, Audrey returned to the United States in July of 1984. And after she got back, she had another CAT scan, and the tumor in her liver was the same. She took this as an indication that her holistic treatments were working, and she decided to continue with that regimen and her dietary changes, which uh, mostly focused on consuming fruits and vegetables. And she continued to write and travel, sometimes with Francis and sometimes alone, to Cuba, St. Croix, Australia, and New Zealand. In the fall of 1985, she started having abdominal pain and weakness. Another CAT scan revealed another tumor in her liver, and the first one had also gotten bigger. She found another anthroposophic doctor in New York. That December, Hunter College named its Poetry Center after Audrey. 
Not long after that, she and Francis went to Switzerland so she could be treated at the Lucas Clinic, an anthroposophic clinic, uh, for cancer treatment. Doctors there confirmed that she had liver cancer and that it had almost certainly metastasized from her breast. Audrey stayed through the start of January of the next year, and when she got back to the state, she saw her regular oncologist who talked to her about conventional treatment options. At that point, she had a prognosis of about five years to live. She took a trip to the Caribbean with Gloria Joseph, whom she'd known and been involved with for a long time. Their relationship deepened, and Audrey began to pull away from Francis. Their relationship, like all relationships, had its ups and downs, and Audrey had already been questioning whether it should continue, especially as she made pretty significant changes to her diet and health regimen uh, that Francis did not make as well. They formally and finally split when they sold their Staten Island home in 1988. Audrey decided to spend the end of her life in St. Croix, which had begun to feel like home to her. Not long before her death, she took the name Gamba Adisa, which means she who makes her meaning known. She lived in St. Croix with Gloria, who was a St. Croix native, until she died on November 17, 1992. Audrey was cremated, and she left instructions for her ashes to be scattered in several places that had meaning to her. Although she often wrote autobiographically, uh, she called her book Zami, A New Spelling of My Name, a biomythography. Uh, there is currently only one written biography of her, uh, which Tracy mentioned at the top of our first part of this two-parter, which is called Warrior Poet, a biography of Audre Lorde, and it's by Alexis DeVoe. It's very thorough, as Tracy said. It's really well-sourced, and it includes a great deal of detail about her life. Yeah, the, the author, I think, must have read every scrap of paper that was available to her that Audrey herself had written, correspondence, uh, all of her essays, uh, to construct a pretty detailed glimpse of her life that goes into a a lot of detail that uh, we haven't really talked about here specifically. It also seems pretty silly to have two episodes talking about a poet without actually including any of her poetry. So... I tried to find a poem that would be both accessible to people um, and also include a lot of the themes that we've talked about uh, and and how Audrey lived her life and the things that she believed in and the things, the themes that were common in her work. So the Charlotte Sheedy Literary Agency graciously gave us permission to read this poem, um, which was originally published by W.W. Norton, which publishes many uh, of the other collections of Audrey's work and is also the publisher of the book Warrior Poet. And this poem is called Who Said It Was Simple? There are so many roots to the tree of anger that sometimes the branches shatter before they bear. Sitting in Nedix, the women rally before they march, discussing the problematic girls they hire to make them free. An almost white counterman passes a waiting brother to serve them first. And the ladies neither notice nor reject the slighter pleasures of their slavery. But I, who am bound by my mirror, as well as my bed, see cause in color, as well as sex, and sit here wondering which me will survive all these liberations. It was originally published in 1970. I'm quite fond of Audre Lorde. (laughs) Yeah, her story is so interesting, and it, it, it is one of those things that always touches me when I hear stories about people being so ahead of their time, mm-hmm. particularly in kind of uh, social norms. I'm always fascinated, because often it seems like we don't hear that much about it. Yeah, well, and I mean, 
I, uh, I majored in literature in school, as some of you may know. Uh, and a lot of times when, when we're talking about poets and other writers, the focus is really on their work. And, and sometimes, uh, at least when I was in school, there was some conversation about the, the factors of a person's life that led them to this work. Uh, but that's often not really what most of the time is spent on. So uh, while I knew a few little snippets about uh, Audre Lorde's life, I really liked getting to know more of it. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, maybe we will talk about more writers at some point in the future. I had a very similar, well, I had a, a similar experience studying literature in college, which is that I realized pretty early into my major, like, I like the literature, but I'm really fascinated by the biographies behind them. Yeah. So, so do you have a little bit of listener mail to I share with us? I do have listener mail. This is another piece of listener mail about our Mendez versus Westminster episode. This one is from Justina, who uh, noted that the last time she wrote to us was back in the Pop Stuff days. Oh, hi, Justina. Hi, Justina. We also miss Pop Stuff. Uh, she says, I have listened to this podcast. Since the fact or fiction days, which is so long ago, yeah, way when, back. when Stuff You Missed in History Class was called Fact or Fiction, uh, and had Josh Clark of Stuff You Should Know as one of the co-hosts, yes. which sometimes when I send people a link to an episode from that era that they've asked for, they get completely flabbergasted <laughs> at who the hosts were uh, way back then. She says, the Mendez versus Westminster episode finally prompted me to write in so I can tell you my own story of the lingering prejudice against speaking a foreign language in the United States. I was born in Poland, but I was only six months old when my parents and I immigrated to the United States, settling in the Philadelphia area. My mom didn't speak English when we arrived here. She did speak Polish, Russian, Yiddish, and German, but not English. Not wanting me to learn English with an accent, she and my dad only spoke to me in Polish. It was my first language. I learned English from going to stores, talking to neighbors, and above all, from Sesame Street. By the time I was three, I was fluent, well, three-year-old fluent, in both languages. I first heard my mom speak English when I was five, and boy, was I surprised that she could. I went to elementary school in the 1970s, and I very much remember how the kids liked to make dumb Polak jokes, which I always found strange because I was a straight-A student. But the story I have is about my reading teacher in third grade, so around 1976. It was open house night at the beginning of the year, and I guess because the school knew that many parents couldn't afford babysitters, kids were allowed to come. I remember looking over and seeing that my mom and my teacher were having a, let's call it an animated discussion. There wasn't any yelling or anything, but I could tell that my mom was not amused. As soon as I could, I asked her what had happened, and she wouldn't tell me. She just said, your teacher and I didn't agree on something, but you don't need to worry about it. She actually said this in Polish. Uh, and <laughs> Justina uh, tells what it was in Polish, but as I do not speak Polish, I'm not going to mangle that. It was clear that my mom wasn't going to tell me, and pretty soon I forgot all about the incident. I had a good year, and I got a solid A. It was only after the school year was over that my mom finally told me what had gone down that evening. My mom had introduced herself, and my teacher had immediately launched into a speech about how my parents needed to stop speaking to me in Polish, that speaking a second language at such a young age was interfering with my ability to speak English. My mom was having none of that. After a little back and forth, she ended with, If you are a good teacher, and I think that you are, despite what you just said, 
Then you will teach my daughter to the best of your ability, and you will see that rather than making her English weak, speaking Polish makes her English stronger. My mom was very happy when she met with the teacher at the parent conference a few months later, and my teacher apologized to her for what she had said at the open house. I don't know if you, if Polish makes your daughter's English stronger, but it certainly doesn't make it weaker. She's my best student, she said. It made my mom's day, week, and year. I'm not certain when attitudes about being bilingual changed in the United States, but it happened right around oblivious me. When I was little, the fact that I spoke two languages was considered a negative. By the time I headed off to college, it was a positive and considered cool by my peers. Thank goodness for that. Keep up the good work. I always learn something new in every episode, so thank you. Regards, Justina. Thank you so much, Justina. That is a really fun story. I love this. I, it's like I simultaneously love this story and hate that the teacher said that in the yeah. first place. Um, and I think a point that we had made in the in the Mendez versus Westminster uh, podcast is it's it's kind of strange to look back in history and see what a huge prejudice there was against people who didn't speak English when today. Like parents will put their infants on waiting lists for second language immersion schools <laughs> yeah. uh, in the hope that they will actually be able to go. That's a complete change in thinking. Yeah. Um, so thank you again, Justina. If you would like to write to us about this or anything else, you can. We are at history podcast at discovery.com. We're also on Facebook at facebook.com slash history class stuff and on Twitter at Mist in History. Our Tumblr is at mistinhistory.tumblr.com, and we are pinning away on Pinterest. If you come to our website and you want to learn about something that we have talked about today, you can put the word feminist in the search bar. You will find top five feminist movements. One of these is black feminism, and it discusses the way that that this is different uh, between white communities and black communities, which uh, is a whole other episode. Yeah. Um, that uh, actually our, our companions at uh, Stuff Mom Never Told You have also been speaking about lately. You can do all of that and a whole lot more at our website, which is HowStuffWorks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. Netflix streams TV shows and movies directly to your home, saving you time, money, and hassle. As a Netflix member, you can instantly watch TV episodes and movies streaming directly to your PC, Mac, or right to your TV with your Xbox 360, PS3, or Nintendo Wii console, plus Apple devices, Kindle, and Nook. Get a free 30-day trial membership. Go to www.netflix.com and sign up now. Do you like boats? Do you like big boats? Do you like poor people and the rich people they serve on big boats? Are you always like, what goes on below deck? Hi, this is Anna Hosnier. And Nick Turner. The hosts of Deckheads. And we want to take you on a fun and goofy adventure. In this binge-style podcast, we will watch and recap every episode of Bravo's Below Deck and all of its spinoffs. And we're going to release an episode a day so you can watch along with us and listen to our silly daily recaps. Listen to Deckheads when it drops on February 20th on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The future is closer than you think, and it all starts in the palm of your hand. You may have heard the news. 5G is coming. In this new iHeart series, This Time Tomorrow, presented by T-Mobile for Business, join me, Oswald Oshin, and my co-host, Cara Price, as we walk you through the true revolution in mobility that will change the way we interact with the world around us. 
Join us and hear just how close we are getting to a more connected future. This Time Tomorrow is now available on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you listen to podcasts.